So many of you have probably heard of C.S. Lewis before, um, popular Christian author. If you haven't, I would advise you very much to read something of his, even if it's something as simple as the Chronicles of Narnia series, all the way up to he has a whole sort of different, all, all sorts of other theological books. But he has this this quote. I'm going to paraphrase this morning. He talks about how you never know the full extent of your trust in someone or something until the stakes become a matter of life and death. And, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? It, it, if I say I trust a rope that's holding up a cardboard box, my trust in that rope isn't really seen as very genuine until that's the same rope that has to hold me up, Right? Or if you imagine, you know, someone, say you're climbing out a first story window and you have someone holding your hand as you climb out, how much you trust that person there changes based on whether you're hanging from a hundred foot cliff, right? We probably want to have more assurance of that person's strength when the stakes are much higher. The genuineness of our trust depends upon, or is displayed at least the higher the stakes are. We come to a passage this morning where we have an official whose stakes are very high. It's a matter of life and death for his son. This is the second sign that we see being given in John's Gospel. It's not necessarily the second miracle that Jesus ever did, but it's the second one that John gives us a description of. And we're going to see some similarities to it, right, in in, We're going to see that there's a rebuke given by Jesus, just like in the first miracle of water into wine. We see that the miracle is done simply by Jesus speaking words. We're going to see that servants are the ones who see the results of the miracle. And we're going to see that the miracle ends with faith or belief. But although the layout of the miracles are similar to each other, done by John for good reason, the circumstances couldn't be more different, right? We have a wedding in the first miracle, and now we have an ill son. We have a time of celebration versus now a time of desperation. We have an official whose son is on the brink of death. And so we're going to see just how genuine this official's faith is. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he had came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So John gives us an intro to this passage of an official coming to Cana from Capernaum with some foreshadowing, right? So, some, some expectations of the problems that already existed with the Jewish people, right? Jesus was just in Samaria, right? He went from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria. Now he's going to Galilee. But remember, Galilee are still Jewish people just like Judea are. It's just the Samaritans that are not fully Jewish, so there's still the full, fully Jewish people, and actually this is Jesus' hometown, right? Right? Galilee, Nazareth, this is Jesus' home. That becomes significant. But remember, we've already seen a problem with the Jewish people, right? We've already seen a problem in their response. Just look back to John chapter 2, verse 23. It says... Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So these people, these Jewish people saw Jesus doing signs and wonders and believed in him, supposedly, because of this. And Jesus didn't believe their faith, right? We talked about this. It says Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't believe their belief because he knew what was in them, which was a desire to see signs and wonders as the basis of their faith. It was based purely on sight, Now we see this same sort of insight becoming helpful as we get into John chapter 4. Because look what happens. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. This is verse 43, now 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Right Now this is where it can get confusing. Jesus comes into Galilee, which is his hometown. Jesus has told us, right, he said that a prophet does not have honor in his hometown. Right? But look at the response of the Galileans. So when he had came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. This kind of seems to be opposites, right? If he has no honor in his hometown, then why are the Galileans welcoming him? But notice how John describes their welcoming. Right? The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. The Galileans' belief, right, their welcoming of Jesus, is based on the same thing the Jewish people in Jerusalem's faith was based on. The fact that they saw something, that they saw signs and wonders. Their faith was based on sight. Right? So it sounds confusing at first, but really it's not. John's using some irony here in his writing. It's kind of hard, right? It's kind of like text messaging, right? How hard is it to read someone's tone of voice when they text you, 
right? It's kind of the same thing. When you're reading the Bible, sometimes we can't fully grasp the emotion with which John was writing. But he's being ironic here. He's saying, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Galilee is Jesus' hometown. He comes to Galilee and they welcome him. But they do it based on the fact that they've seen him do signs and wonders. If that wasn't enough, John continues to address this same thing. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So now Jesus is in the same place where he did the first miracle, where people saw the miracle done, right? So Jesus is now surrounded with a bunch of people who have seen him do a sign or multiple signs and wonders. Their perspective of Jesus is fogged, right? They're they're seeing Jesus as the miracle worker, not Jesus as the Son of God. Everybody has seen this sign done, and there's this expectation of what's he going to do next? What's the next miracle that's going to be done? And then we have an official enter the picture. So not only everybody in Cana that knows the water was turned into wine, but now we have an official from 16 to 20 miles away who's heard the news of Jesus, the miracle worker, who's turned water into wine. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man hears that Jesus is now back in Galilee, and he says, I have to go to him. He's the one who turned water into wine. He must be able to heal my son. Probably because this official had used everything else he possibly could have at this point. He's probably exhausted every resource at his fingertips. So he's desperate. My son's on the brink of death. No doctors can help him. No authorities, no royalty that I'm connected with as an official. Nobody has been able to help him. But this guy 20 miles away, this Jesus that I've heard of, he's turned water into wine. Maybe he can help me. So let me travel and talk to him. Many of us can probably identify with this desperation, can't we? Have you ever held a sick child in your arms? I just remember, I think it was shortly after we first moved here, it was, you just, you don't know what to do sometimes, right? I remember one night that Albert had a, a high fever, and I, I'm pretty sure, kids always seem to get fevers when the doctor's office is closed, don't they? It's like on the week, it's like Friday night at 10 o'clock, and you're like, I got three days to make it here, Right? And I just remember holding him in my arms as he was burning up and just like, what do I do? Do I go to the emergency room? Do I wait till the next morning and go to an urgent care somewhere? Do I wait till Monday morning and try to go to the doctor? And praise God, I'm pretty sure that was the one where he just slept through the night and sweated out and he was fine the next morning. But in that moment of the high fever, you're desperate, right? You're just like, I'll do anything I have to. I just don't know what's the right thing to do. This is this guy, but he's done everything. So he says, I'm going to travel 15, 20 miles to Cana, where I've heard this Jesus is. And he comes to Jesus and he says, please come down and heal my son. And Jesus gives him a candid response. 
It's probably meant for this guy and for all the people listening in, all the people in Cana that are expecting the next miracle. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus tells this man and the people around him that there is an obstacle in the way of their faith. It's the obstacle of sight. The barrier is their demand for signs and wonders. They say, show us proof, right? We desire to see proof before we put our trust in you. And Jesus is condemning that kind of faith. He's saying, this isn't real faith. This is actually displaying your doubts about who I truly am. You don't believe who I am. You're only believing in what I'm doing This desire to see evidence has clouded their minds to the point that they have misidentified Jesus. They view Jesus now as someone who has to prove himself to them. You have to do a miracle for us to truly believe who you say you are. God doesn't need to prove himself to anybody. Nor does the Son of God. If the true identity of who Jesus is, is the Son of God. God in the flesh, they're saying that's not enough for us. If that's what they need is proof, their faith would never be authentic. It'll never be genuine. They'll always be resting in the proof, not in the person. The official goes on to respond to Jesus and shows the weakness of his faith. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now you read this and you might think, this just sounds like a plea from a desperate father. But notice what he includes in his plea. Jesus, come down with me and heal him. There is no sense in this guy that he is able, that Jesus is able to heal his son unless Jesus physically goes with him. This man is saying, you must come down with me. I must see you with my own two eyes. Come with me to my son and watch you heal him. And we know from the rest of the story that Jesus totally turns that upside down. But this man says, you must come with me. It shows just how much he misses it, right? He he totally misses who Jesus is. There's actually another story very similar to this story, but we see the person asking for help has the opposite. He has a strong faith. Let's read it real quick together. Just a portion of it. We come to a centurion whose servant is sick. And Jesus is on his way to that centurion's home. And I want you to look how the centurion comes out to Jesus, how he responds to him. Luke, 7, chap, or Luke chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
You see the difference in faith. You have the official saying, you have to come with me. And you have the centurion saying, stop, don't come any further. All you have to do is speak the word. I don't even deserve to have you in my home. Weak faith versus strong faith. Or you could even say, not true faith versus authentic faith. And look at how Jesus responds to this centurion's faith. Verse 9 of Luke 7. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We have a Gentile, a Roman centurion. Someone who's not even part of the Jewish family. And Jesus says, he has greater faith than anybody I've found in the Jewish people. Because he understands he doesn't even deserve to have the Son of God in his own home. And he says, just stop, you can just say the word. But we come back to the official and he says, no, you've got to come with me. He's misidentified who Jesus is. This happens in our own lives, doesn't it? Have you ever had a child misidentify who you are? And I don't mean that they think you're some, you're, that you're not their actual mom or dad or whatever it is, but let me give you an example. We had a foster girl that lived with us. She was a teenage girl. And she was convinced from her past experiences that the way that parents show care for their child is to hand a phone over to them and pay for it and to give them rides wherever they want to go. And that was the extent of parenting. That's what she wanted from, from Lydia and I as we were foster parents. Phone and rides. She had misidentified us. That's not what parents are. Parents aren't simply just chauffeurs who provide a cell phone. She thought care meant you have to give me tangible things and pretty much the things that I want. It's like the people here. Jesus, in order for us to believe who you are, you have to show us something. Give us signs, give us some sort of proof, some sort of evidence, but it shows that they miss Jesus. So what about you? What are your requirements for you to believe who Jesus really is? You might say, I don't have any. I just trust Jesus. But we all fight the obstacle of sight. There's some Christian movements even in our world, or at least movements that claim to be Christian would probably be the better way of saying it, who believe that if your faith is not accompanied by miracles being done, physical miracles being done, then you're not really exercising true authentic faith. That if Jesus isn't doing a physical miracle of somebody in your life, then you must have missed his power. Right? This is a common theme on a bunch of TV preachers, or even by some churches that support the artists that you hear on Christian radio. Or maybe it's more personal than that. Maybe you've been hurt by people so much in the past that it takes a lot for you to be willing to trust somebody. So what you do is you'll say, Jesus, I'll give you a try as long as you continue to do things the way I like them to be done. And the moment Jesus does something unexpected in life, you start to back away and say, whoa, 
that's not what I was thinking of. Your trust is based on Jesus showing you something. Or maybe you have doubts right now about who God is and who Jesus is in the midst of everything going on in our country. Right? God has blessed our time as a country for much of our history up until this point. But now it seems like everything's upside down. Now I think we should pray and hope for revival in our country. Pray and hope that people come to Jesus. But the question is, what if revival doesn't happen? What if those who don't believe in Jesus continue to live in evil and it just gets worse? Does that negate who God is? Does that negate who Jesus is? Does your faith dwindle because all of a sudden it's become difficult to be a Christian now? We shouldn't be the ones who are requiring evidence of only if revival happens will I believe Jesus is who he says he is. If you continue requiring evidence for your faith, you will never take Jesus at his own word. Which is what we see next. We see, we're just going to narrow down on one part of one verse and see the word that awakens faith. We saw up until this point, this official has weak faith or even almost non-existent faith. Faith that thinks Jesus has to be present for a miracle to be done. But John goes on to tell us, plain and simple, how Jesus responds to this official's misidentification of who he is. He believes that Jesus must come with him, must be physically present, that he must have sight of the miracle. But now Jesus responds, chapter 4, verse 50, the first part. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Plain and simple. But we can imagine the difficulty for the official, right? Imagine what this means for the official. Jesus is saying, your son's healed, but I'm not going with you. Right? This is simply just unheard of, right? This man has to take directions now from Jesus and trust that simply by Jesus' word, it's going to be done. He has to now come to terms with who is this man that stands in front of me. His identification now of Jesus has to change if he's going to truly trust in Jesus. Because who else can heal the sick? Who else can rescue this son from the brink of death all from miles away from him? Who else can do it but God? So this official has to come come to terms with the conclusion of either this is God in the flesh and I'm going to take him at his word, or I'm going to continue to ask for him to come with me. The man wouldn't have any evidence. Even if his son was healed, Jesus wasn't there when it happened. Right? Jesus wasn't physically present. This man would never have evidence of it other than his own hearing of Jesus' words. I wish I could have heard this sentence. I wish I could have seen the expression on Jesus' face as he says it. 
Because what we see is these few simple words awaken faith in the official. His demand for signs is gone. His desperation is eliminated. He trusts simply by the word of Jesus. We all have these moments in life, don't we? Where we have to trust someone aside from Jesus. Now we have to trust a person based on their word, not on evidence. I think of Sadie again this week. Sadie, Sadie has a problem, for those of you who don't know, uh, eating at the table. She gets herself very distracted. right? She likes to try to take toys and distract herself. So she took one little figure. That's all she got one day for lunch this week was with this little figure that she could not stop playing with at the table. So she got it taken away, and she lost it. right? I mean, absolutely lost it for five, ten minutes of just screaming upset about it. Refusing to eat still. And I looked at her in the midst of her crying and I said, Sadie, I said, do you trust me? And she said, yeah. I said, then please eat. And she slid her plate over and started eating. Right? She had to take me at my word. Simply by saying, just trust me. And you know what's even crazier? Is I've proven myself at times to fail and not be trustworthy in life. Because I'm a sinner, just like all of us in here. I've proven myself not to be trustworthy, and she still took me at my word. How much more when God in the flesh, who is worthy of all trust, comes and says, trust me, should we take him at his word? What about you? Does your faith rest in the character of who God is? Because really, that's the missing element when the obstacle of sight comes into play. In those moments, we don't see God for who he truly is. And so we say, you have to do something in order for me to believe that about you. We begin to doubt the character of of who God is. What characteristic of God are you most tempted to doubt? Do you doubt his goodness? That somehow, some way, God might somehow treat you unfairly? Do you doubt God's love? That one day he might stop loving you if you're not good enough? Do you doubt his sovereignty that he could possibly lose control at some point. I want to invite you to approach God this morning, approach Jesus this morning, knowing that his word is true. That everything, everything you read in this book can be taken to the bank. Not a word of it is untrustworthy. Everything you know about God is trustworthy. There's no shred of question about it. He is good. He does love you. He is in control. And you can trust him this morning. And we see this official trust in Jesus. And that's the last part, is we see then markers of true faith in his life. 
It's in the immediate response to Jesus' word that we start to begin to see his true faith. Just in the same verse, verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. No more questions asked. No more pleading. No more sign requests. So the first marker of true faith is the man has a restful heart. Because if you pay attention to how the rest of the story plays out, imagine this. What time did he talk to Jesus? It says about the seventh hour later in the passage, which is about one o'clock in the afternoon. Now, to travel 15 to 20 miles was four to six hours, right? Just approximate that. That's about right, for their day and age at least. So this man, at one o'clock, hears the words, go, your son will live. What's the expected response of him? Four to six hours, I can make it home by nightfall probably, right? I'm going to go home and check on my son. But when he runs into his servants the next day, what does that tell us? He waited in Cana. The man from one o'clock in the afternoon said, Jesus said it'll be done. I'll wait till the next day to go home. His heart was at rest. Right? In the moment when we we think, well, I would be so anxious, I would just want to run home and make sure he's okay, this man trusted Jesus' word enough to say, I'm going to wait till the next day. He's so sure of Jesus' identity as God in the flesh. But then we do see he runs into his servants, and then we see the next marker of true faith. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So the second marker of true faith is anticipation of affirmation all right anticipation of affirmation his the servants come to him and say your son is recovering what's the guy's first response what would your first response be mine would be celebration let's go see him what's this guy say what time did it happen this man is looking anticipating a link between his son's recovery and Jesus' word. He's trying to find a way to link the two together because his trust is in anticipating the confirmation of what he already knows to be true about Jesus. And then we go on to see that it ends up having life saturation. Right? So we have a restful heart, Anticipation of affirmation and life saturation. Look at the last part of verse 53. And he himself believed and all his household. The end result is this faith saturates this man's life to the point that everyone in his home believes. When he trusts in Jesus for who Jesus truly is, not based on Jesus' signs, but in who Jesus truly is, that reality begins to marinate his entire life. 
his entire heart, the entire person of who he is, so much to the point that it spreads to the entire persons living with him. Do you ever get annoyed by the flags that like utility companies put in your yard? Anybody ever seen those or had those? We get so frustrated by them, don't we? They just look sad and ugly, like it just doesn't fit with anything at our home. But they're incredibly useful for those who are using them, aren't they? Because those flags are markers for where certain items are going to go or where certain items are, right? The placement of certain things. Just like those flags mark the placement of certain things in your yard, these are just a few markers listed here for us, given to us by this official. Markers that show what true faith looks like. So where do you see or not see these markers in your own life? Do you find yourself having a restful heart, regardless of the situation around you? Or are you restless, filled with anxiety? You're troubled by things that happen that are unexpected in life. Recognize this morning that you can hand over, cast your anxieties on God. Trust his word that he will take care of you. Or do you wake up anticipating being able to see the truth of who Jesus is each day in your life? Anticipating the affirmation of what you already believe to be true? Or are you so caught up in the daily tasks before you that you miss him? Those who take Jesus at his word as expect each day when they wake up that they're going to know him more deeply by something that day. You expect to find out more about who Jesus is, to grow deeper in what you already know to be true about Jesus. You're anticipating more from Jesus each day when you wake up. And has the truth of who Jesus is saturated each part of your life? Or does it simply take up your Sunday morning and your prayer time before meals? Because if you've grasped who he is, the identity of Jesus, not what he does, if you've grasped who Jesus is, it changes everything. It changes your work ethic. It changes your social habits. It changes the way you parent. It changes your marriage. It changes the choices of entertainment you make. It changes the way you view politics. All of it changes when you recognize who Jesus is. So let me compel you this morning. Take Jesus at his word. Don't require that things have to go your way in order for Jesus to gain your trust. You don't need miracles. You don't need any ease of life. You don't need to see, well, if, if you change their heart first, then I might trust in you. Jesus is worthy to be trusted solely because of who he is. That he is the son of God who is revealing the father to us. He is the one who loves you the one who cares for you, to the extent that he's willing to die for you, 
He's willing to take all of your failures, all of your sin, all of the ways you've disobeyed, and take your punishment on a cross so that you might be saved. So that you who might put your trust in Jesus at His word, trust in Him and who He is, that you might become more like Him. That you might be reconciled to the Father and then have your life display Jesus as your heart begins to be awakened to faith. You become like Jesus. Remember, you can rest. You can have a restful heart because Jesus told us, take on my yoke and my burden, which is light and easy. You can always expect Jesus to display who he is. And it never changes. Why? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can have your entire life soaked, marinated in the sweetness of who Jesus is. Remember to taste and see that the Lord is good. So hear Jesus' word this morning and trust in him for who he is, not because of some evidence that you're requiring to see. Let's pray.